Now to talk about Sullivan's Travels and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? We have Professor Kerry Soper uh, with us here in the booth. Professor Soper teaches in interdisciplinary humanities. He's an Americanist, deals a lot with history of comics and popular culture, among other things. Welcome to our show. Thanks, Chip. Fun to be here. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what you teach, Kerry. So the courses I teach that include portions on film include uh, an introduction to pop culture and the humanities, a junior level film theory course, and then a couple of senior seminars, uh, one on popular genre film, and then another on comedy and satire. So a movie like Sullivan's Travels really hits a sweet spot for me in terms of being useful in, in a lot of those courses. Yeah, and I know these are really popular courses in the department, too. I don't know about that. <laughs> well, let's start a little bit with uh, Sullivan's Travels. Uh, in the preview, I gave a little bit of a background uh, to this that when we're talking about this film, this is a you know, kind of classic comedy from 1941. Preston Sturgis is one of the, the great screenwriters and directors of screwball comedies, but also a director who liked to have creative control. You know, this is an era of studios, kind of the control of the studios in Hollywood, but he stands as an exception to that in, in some ways, in that he, he really insisted on having, you know, the ability to call more of the shots, right? That's right. He's so fun to study because he stands apart from the typical ways that the studios operated. You know, that term you get in film studies, the, the metteur on scène, the, the typical director who's under a long-term contract and they basically are told what films they're going to direct and they can't change the script, like a scene setter, right? Yeah. And then the, the term that goes with that is the auteur, which is the author of the work, the, the film director that somehow carves out some clout to be more than just someone filling in the, the blanks. And along with a few directors like Billy Wilder and Charlie Chaplin and Alfred Hitchcock, Preston Sturgis really stands out as a, a prime example of that kind of figure. Yeah. And it's a fun story, too, about how he achieved that auteur-like clout, right? Yeah, well, it's interesting. The One thing that just jumps out to me about Preston Sturgis' films is the dialogue, right? And, and this is a really good example of the witty and quick dialogue, you know, the back and forth that you can tell that he's had this training that has, you know, uh, or experience that's trained him, maybe better said, I don't know that it was so formal, in script writing, you know, that, that he knew what he was doing in, in putting together something that's both natural, but also kind of quick and witty. Yeah, he had an interesting upbringing where his mother was this kind of socialite, right, who ran in bohemian circles, was friends with Isadora Duncan and took uh, Preston on trips around Europe and he got an elite education and so he really was steeped in Shakespeare and you know classical Greek and Roman comedy and drama as well and so uh. he's, he's bringing to the table in his writing that kind of wealth of of knowledge and he's tapping into those templates and you know making fun you know references that are, are very educated and he began his career writing uh, for the Broadway stage. Mm -hmm. And then he gradually works his way into Hollywood, you know, as a screenwriter. And he did such a good job on the treatments that he was given that he was able to gradually leverage that success into becoming both a writer and a director. And then, you know, he was clever in the way he'd, he'd do that. He would, you know, deliver a script and it was so polished that they're like, you know, can we just have it as is? And then he put a stipulation that, oh, you know, as long as no one can change any of the words, I'll let you have it for this amount. And then with what the, the true McGinty? Yeah, the great McGinty. The great McGinty. Yeah. He um, was able to get the studio to let him direct and do the, the, the script by 
only charging a dollar, right, for uh, his <laughs> yeah. services as, as director. But but in return, being able to have this kind of control over exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, we'll get to, oh, brother, where art thou? But th- there's a it's an interesting model that the Cohen brothers kind of occupy that similar kind of space, you know, today, I think, in that directors that have a lot of creative control over the, the kinds of things that they do. When, when you teach Sullivan's Travels, though, what's your basic approach usually? Why is this a good example of classical, you know, kind of Hollywood comedy? Or is it an exception? Does it stand out in a particular way? I think it's actually an exception. Like Chaplin and, and the Coen brothers, he's really working sort of in this liminal area, like hybrid genres, like where he's mm-hmm. stitching together different tones and genre conventions. And so Hollywood sometimes doesn't know how to categorize his uh, films. Like he's pulling some screwball romantic comedy you know, foundations, but then he's adding to it satire and more complex kinds of references and yeah. verbal slapstick that you're, you're talking about. And some people even watch Sullivan's Travels and they, and they say it feels like two movies. Like there's kind of a yeah. zany, um, comedic, slapsticky quality to the first half. And then all of a sudden it gets very dark and serious at the end. Even its, its treatment of some of the secondary characters uh, shifts as it kind of melds into a new genre mode, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, you think about the... I don't know if you want to quite think of it as violence, but the this very slapstick, physical slapstick kind of scene in the caravan uh, early on, right, where everyone's kind of bouncing around inside the, you know, inside this big bus, and it's, you know, it's very, it's very slapstick. None of, you know, people are getting pots, you know, landing on their heads or their, you know, heads are going through the roof or whatever. And it, it's all very reversible kind of violence. It, it's not nothing sticks, so to speak. No one's yeah. really hurt. Whereas later on in the film, when he is, you know, he's knocked out on the train, he comes to in the yard and and the the manager of the yard is giving him a hard time and he picks up a rock and he hits him with it. And that violence is fundamentally different than that kind of violence we were seeing early on and that there are real consequences. Seems to very hit. real and mundane yeah. and, and ugly, right? Yeah, yeah and, and it's what of course, you know, ends him up in the chain gang towards the end. So you're right, there there is a real a real shift. I mean, it's more ambitious, too, in that it, it has an actual kind of message, which I think a lot of comedies don't necessarily feel like they need to have, and so far that it, it's wanting to make a certain commentary about the relationship between thinking about poverty in the abstract and experiencing poverty, right? Yeah, and to show how this black congregation, who probably are very poor, have this fundamental kind of goodness or humanity you know, and they're cheerful and, and they're enjoying life. I mean, it's such a sympathetic portrayal of African-American people, especially for mid-century Hollywood treatments that tended to default to those kinds of stereotypical scenes, like the one you described from the first half of the film. The president of the NAACP, in fact, wrote a, a thank you letter to Preston Sturgis really? about that scene, just for both that it was sympathetic, but also realistic. Like, yeah. they seem like everyday people. It's not like they were made to seem... Caricatures. Caricatures as either overly kind of heroic and noble or somehow um, stereotypically, you know, laughable. It's like just instead documenting real people. But can we talk a little bit about that that scene in terms of the comedy? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I found out is that Sturgis initially wanted to have a clip from... A movie by Charlie Chaplin, in 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 the end there when all yeah. the people are laughing. Yeah, the uh, the way that it ended up was with uh, uh, Disney, right? With yeah, the Pluto and Pluto, exactly. Yeah, Mickey Mouse. So the problem with the Pluto 
clip is that it ends the movie with this uh, resolution where it seems like it's an either-or proposition. Either you have super silly, mindless slapstick, like the Pluto clip, yeah. or what are the films that he used to, that you know, Sullivan used to, like, Ants in the Pants of 1942 <laughs> yeah. or something. Um, or you have, on the other end, heavy-handed, condescending um, right. social drama. Mm-hmm. And... If he had included the Chaplin clip, it would have shown like a third path that Chaplin achieved as right. an auteur in movies like Modern Times, where he had slapstick, he had melodrama, but he also had politically engaged satire. Yeah. And so Sturgis's own career shows the third path, right? Yeah. Where as an auteur, he had slapstick plus really complex verbal comedy, and then um, satire. I mean, this is a movie that satirizes... Uh, the way movies were made at yeah. uh, mid-century, or how African Americans uh, were depicted. So his own career shows that it's not an either-or proposition. That a few brave directors, writers, producers could push back against Hollywood conventions. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I felt was a little bit unsatisfying in a way for my 21st-century sensibility about this film is you know I was trying to to tease out what is Sturgis trying to say about you know, about the, the position of of kind of engaging poverty, especially if one doesn't experience it firsthand, that there's almost, he almost seems to be suggesting that either you're rich or you're poor, and you should basically kind of stay in your lane in a kind of way, that that's one way that the film might be mm. understood, that there's a kind of essentialist, you know, kind of quality to it. You know, that Sullivan, by the end, recognizes that that's I can go out there and I can kind of slum it if I want to, but I'm faking it. Like, I know that sincere. I can always go back to, yeah. to something else. So, yeah, that would be disturbing if it, the message was like a stay-in-your-lane kind of um, scenario. I think maybe the, the takeaway is that uh, whoever you are, whatever you know, social position you're in, you, you need to be genuine and sincere, and you need to treat people in a, a humane way. And so that applies to people in this African-American church that yeah. are very poor, or if you're a film creator like just be a good human being right yeah yeah well i like that and i like the idea of the third way too i mean that kind of actually helps to resolve that you know what i was the responsibility of being this hollywood filmmaker where you're both satisfying audiences with crowd-pleasing comedy but you're also you have a social conscience you you, you can engage in satire yeah so um he's able to meld different genres and as a result create something that is much more uh complex right and Coming back to the staying your own lane problem or issue, it helps that he's borrowing the screwball comedy template, which has already embedded in it a challenge to you know sort of class hierarchies because because mm-hmm. usually there's a female lead or protagonist that comes from a different class position than the the male lead, and she uses verbal slapstick and kind of trickster figure devices, kind of comedic jujitsu mm-hmm. to leverage her way into a different class position or take down somebody who's artificially kind of pompous in a higher class position. So it's a challenge to class pretensions, class... Okay, and it's kind of a legit, yeah. for, legitimate form of class striving or, yeah. or class undermining, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And doesn't Veronica Lake kind of play that kind of working class girl? Who's, she does, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, she does. I mean, it raises a whole kind of... <laughs> 
other interesting group of questions dealing with it. There's a very paternalistic relationship between the S- Sullivan character and oh, that's um, interesting. And the Ver- Veronica Lake character. And it's interesting because she's never even given a name, actually. The girl. It's just always the girl <laughs> in, in this. And there's a similar kind of paternalistic relationship between the wealthy and the poor in this. Now, there's ways I think that you're right. There's ways that it's also being resisted. The butler makes at one point Ooh. a really insightful comment. He says that, you know, the rich think of poverty as the lack of money. Uh, he says it's not. It's like a disease and a plague, you know, to be avoided. And and he has this kind of different different perspective about what poverty is. But is there a parallel going on between the you know, the 1940s misogynism and the kind of class? Well, I mean, because the critique of the of the screwball comedy would be that, yeah, it's subverting class, but only in a way to make people feel good about themselves, not in a way to ever actually challenge actually, it. Actually, you know, really it's challenge like it. Like a temporary carnivalesque. Exactly. Subversion of it, but ultimately it gets reinforced. A pressure, a pressure about. I mean, this would be the critique generally of the message of the film that, okay, having people escape their problems for you know for a few minutes in the film, which it's saying is a very positive thing. You know, the Marxist critic would say this is the opiate, right? That it's kind of being given to the masses to make them complacent and not you know throw off their chains or something like that. I mean, I don't know that we have to kind of totally buy into that kind of reading well, either. In my theory class, we actually test out the, a Marxist reading like that that has a kind of a pessimistic conclusion about sort of temporary carnivalesque inversions that end up reinforcing the social order. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately we kind of reject it and embrace what we call like neo-Marxist frames, but I won't get into that. Yeah. Instead, I'll say, I think a Shakespearean reading is, is a better one. It's more hopeful. Yeah. And the fact that Sturgis liked Shakespeare and knew how to borrow tropes and templates from, from him could support what I'm saying. In a Shakespearean frame... There are these carnivalesque inversions that are temporary, and they get kind of shut down. But people at the end of the play are actually changed by their time within the Forest of Arden or within that carnivalesque realm. And they're made more open-minded, more progressive. It's, It's like you get new order and old order ideas reconciling at the end, usually represented by multiple marriages, right, and a father figure reconciling with young people. Yeah. And in Sturgis, you've got the butler almost as like, a father figure crossed with a, a wise fool who's yeah. like chiding Sullivan about what he's doing and helping the two progress in their romance. And the two of them, in a Shakespearean kind of mode, are made better people by their initially insincere but then later sincere efforts to try to invert yeah. social hierarchy. Okay, yeah, like I, that. I like that. I like that reading. Let, let's turn real quick to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou then? How do we read this movie differently, understanding that the Cohen brothers are playing off of Preston Sturgis? Does it is that a necessary thing to know? I mean, I guess not. You could see, watch this film and not understand that, not and still get a lot of enjoyment out of it. But I guess my question is, what is the added value in understanding the connection between the two? Do you think? Well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, the the movie um, still is enjoyable. I remember reading a, a critique from Roger Ebert of. Oh, brother, were out there where he thought it was a great movie, but he was just kind of a little bit unsatisfied or confused about what it was doing. Yeah, and I think if you don't know about like the inside references and jokes that the Coen Brothers are playing, you can leave Oh, brother, were out there just kind of bemused, like yeah, fun but slightly confusing movie in terms of what it's about. Mm-hmm. I think it starts to fall into place, right, in terms of some more elaborate or ambitious plans. If if you if you make those connections, like. First of all, you can see that 
the Coen brothers admire earlier directors like mm-hmm. Sturgis and Wilder who were willing to find ways to control their texts, right, to be both writers and directors and maybe even producers mm-hmm. at, at some point. And so there's that tribute. And then what do you do with that clout? They did something similar. They, they made a movie that doesn't really fit within a particular genre frame and that melds um, some slapstick, some references to classical literature, and some vague satire right into an, an interesting melange. Yeah. And pretty aggressive filmic devices too, right? Like the sepia-toned... Yeah, that's um, right. This digital... Yeah, the first film to kind of do complete digital color correction for yeah. the whole film. Yeah. And it gives this wonderful atmosphere to the whole movie. I mean, it's it's as if that they... You know, they're kind of riffing off of the... You know, what, what Sturgis is starting, at, particularly at the end of Sullivan's Travels with this, uh, you know, the, the chain gang, the South, you know... Um, they, they take that and they, they make a whole, that's where they put the whole movie, right? And they kind of expand it out. and, and That's so. right. And then you, again, using the South, they get to obliquely address some race issues mm-hmm. in a similarly progressive way. Yeah. In like the, the, the mocking of the Ku Klux Klan and then the scene at the end with the different political leaders, one sort of an alt-right kind of guy, yeah. <laughs> right? That's right. Who's trying to, in a populist way, rile people up. And the Soggy Bottom Boys using their carnivalesque kind of appeal, silliness and popularity to actually push the political drift into a more positive uh, direction. Yeah. And bringing some race issues along with it, right? Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, in thinking a little bit, I mean, we'll kind of extend on the classical mythology a little bit. And neither of us are classicists, so we're both yeah. a little out of our depth here, I, I realize. But, you know, here we have Odysseus, Ulysses in this case, right? who's coming home, trying to come home. And, you know, and as in the Odyssey, he's he's meeting all these troubles and trials coming home. Obstacles along the way. Is he changed? Is, is it about self-realization? Is it about oh. change or building? Or is Ulysses the exact same at the end here as at the beginning? Yeah, I, I think that he's probably the same, but that doesn't mean that we as viewers right. are the same, right? Like he's stubbornly kind of vain, and it's not even clear that he's going to reconcile with his... <laughs> with Penelope or Penelope, Penny. Right, yeah. because of the ring <laughs> issue. But um, I think that's kind of a classic, you know, device to have your... Like, you know, someone like Huck Finn or, mm-hmm. or Everett here be a little bit dense so that it's up to the viewer or the reader to kind of make the connections and make the moral choices and, yeah. you know, be changed by the comedy and the silliness. And yeah. So how is that kind of comedy different from what Preston Sturgis is doing in the 40s? I mean, is, is this represent a, a different kind of moment in the history of comedy? Is it simply a different genre um, that you can find analogous you know, sorts of things in the 40s? Or, or am I asking the wrong question? Maybe they're just taking another set of kind of genre ingredients and mixing them together in a combustible way, a different, a different you know, sort of melange. Mm-hmm. But they're using the same approach as chefs in doing a fusion, yeah, right? And it kind of anticipates maybe things like Jojo Rabbit mm-hmm. in terms of um, this silly, serious yeah. tone and the, the resting of really racist tropes and doing counter-discursive things with them. Yeah. Like, you know what Taika Waititi does with Hitler? Maybe they're doing with the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. And so they're opening doors for some really hybrid tones and modes that we see blossoming 
in um, recent years, perhaps. That's interesting. Yeah, to think of it as kind of in terms of hybridity that way, because this would explain well why all of the intertextual references too, right? That you yeah. know, that kind of thing really breeds a kind of hybridity where... Oh, that's you know, good. And the idea of kind of intertext being that you cite something, I mean, in this case, the title, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, makes us think of, uh, um, of Sullivan's Travels, or you, you say that this is based on the Odyssey, although it's very loosely based on the Odyssey. It makes us think about all of those things. It's not that they're trying to retell it in a straightforward kind of way at all. It's simply it wants to in, invoke kind of these bits and pieces so that we're always thinking about it in these different contexts. I mean, it's very yeah. postmodern, right, in, in that sense. And very postmodern in the sense that it doesn't have some definitive satiric point that it's trying to make, but it's being kind of disruptive and provocative yeah. and, and, and vaguely progressive, right, in challenging racist or, or fascist ways of, of thinking. One thing I wanted to say about Sturgis and the Coen brothers and maybe even Chaplin is that all of these figures ended up frustrating not just studio bosses, but like other people in the industry that were used to more collaborative filmmaking or writing teams that would work on films together. Yeah, It kind of reminds me of the way the Beatles upset the professional recording industry by writing their own music in addition to playing it well. Put out of work in some ways a lot of like, you know, studio musicians yeah. and, and professional writers. And, and so the stories of the careers of Sturgis, Chaplin, and not the Coen brothers, but like maybe... Orson Welles, yeah. they, they end poorly. Like they, they, mm -hmm. they end up sort of getting punished by Hollywood for their success and their maybe their hubris, right, in doing yeah. so much. And if any of you out there want to look into like what happens to Chaplin and Sturgis as their careers you know, kind of wind down, it's pretty um, disturbing and sad, right? I wonder if in the 21st century we have a different kind of spot in our hearts for... A greater tolerance? Yeah, a greater tolerance for this, right? I mean, because the, the Coen brothers emerge out of the independent cinema movement, which you can make the argument the independent cinema movement has now been kind yeah. of reincorporated into the studio system, you know, once again. But they tolerate it. They've incorporated it. Well, we have the idea of the auteur that is, you know, this the like independent film, yeah. you know, maker that can can see, you know, his or her vision through despite, you know, the fact that, of course, it's a collaborative effort. It's always a collaborative, yeah. you know, effort. But we but we have that category now that they didn't benefit from in the early That's right. That, that would make sense why they've kind of thrived. Yeah. And, it's, and the studio system is no longer monolithic. Yeah. And you've got these independent production modes that now make it hard for anyone to control yeah. something centrally. Right? No, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for uh, joining us here and from the booth. Uh, we appreciate your insights. That was a lot of fun. Thanks. Well, thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU, which is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. The hosts and guests of this podcast are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they do not necessarily represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. Thank you to Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, our sound engineer, as well as the staff of the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Screenings have ended in the Kimball Tower for now because of the virus, but we hope that you'll continue to follow our screenings through our website. Watch our website for details and keep your eyes open for great film.